Father, that is our prayer this morning, that you would be glorified in us. Lord, we seek to honor you, to worship you, not merely through singing, as wonderful as singing and worshiping together is, we seek to honor you in our lives, which means we want to enact your word in obedience in our lives. So, Lord, we pray that as we study your word, read your word this morning, you would move in us and you would cause in us a desire to obey and to live out your commands. Help us do this. Lord, we pray, especially for those who don't know you this morning, we pray that you would first bring light to their heart, show them their need of salvation. Show them that in spite of what they may think they know or what they assume about themselves spiritually, show them that they are indeed dead in sin and need to be changed. And we pray that as you do that, bring that change to their hearts so that they could repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. Bring them to salvation even today. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Some of you know, given the series that we're in, where we're headed with 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 15 today in specific, though I'll read a little bit more. Those of you who are with us for the first time, after our final week in the book of Matthew, we spent many years studying that wonderful gospel. We got to that final section, the Great Commission, and after that moment, we've been spending a little time studying that task, which is the art of making disciples, or what I've called for the series, telling the truth. Jesus said, make disciples, going, baptizing, teaching, make disciples. And that final passage in Matthew really set this whole series, really mini-series, before we get to our next study, our next book that we're going to walk through, I figured we would spend time studying this command, the command to make disciples. Really, that command really is our core action. That core action is obedience. Are we going to simply obey the words of Jesus? Jesus has given us a command. We don't have to inject a false notion that somehow it's up to us to get people into heaven or let them go to hell. No, it is God's sovereignty. God saves people. God will save His people with or without us. But Jesus has given us a command, and He's graciously included us in the saving of His lost sheep and sending us out to all the world so that we can declare the excellencies of Him who's brought us out of darkness into His wonderful light. It's a wonderful part of His sovereign providence that He would include us. And just like any moral will or any kind of command that God gives us to obey it is to place us in the center of God's orders, God's sovereign will, and it gives us joy, and it gives us happiness, it helps us worship Him. So obedience really is this core activity. Last time we noted the core attitude. Remember what that core attitude was? It was trust. We studied a parable of Jesus, the sower, He sows the seed and He sleeps. He doesn't know how that works. He doesn't know, and he doesn't presume that he has the power of that seed. He rested in the power of God through his word, and then enjoys the harvest. Though we can presume that that sower wanted to be a good farmer, a skillful farmer, 
his imperfections at farming did not paralyze him. It didn't worry him. Why? Because he knew that the power to change a heart is in the Word of God and in the power of God. Well, today, in fact, we're going to talk about honing our skill, being prepared, being ready. And in fact, after this, we're going to spend several weeks just looking at some pillars of the gospel that I hope will help you be ready to share the gospel to whomever God brings in your life. We don't have to be paralyzed by our own shortcomings or weakness, but it doesn't keep us from having to hone our skill. And that's really what this passage is about. The core activity is obedience. The core attitude is trust. Today we're going to learn that the core ability is readiness. We should be, in Peter's words, be ready always, he said. Now before we read this passage, I want to give a little bit of background here. Peter wrote this letter to whom he called the elect exiles. That's in chapter 1. What's that mean? Now, the Roman emperor at that time was Nero. Nero was not the first emperor to persecute Christians, but he certainly was the first notorious emperor to persecute Christians. It is likely that for political reasons, he set fire to the capital city, Rome, in order to blame the Christians, in order to give him political justification for killing Christians. In fact, that's what he did. He crucified many Christians. He burnt many Christians. He tortured many Christians. And so Peter is writing to a group of people who are essentially fleeing the cities, cities perhaps that their family had lived in for generations, many generations. And these people are fleeing these cities. They're on the run. They're essentially refugees. And Peter is writing this letter to, him, to them to encourage them, to encourage them in their task and their opportunity and their duties and their character to encourage them even in the hardships that they're facing. Now, Peter's writing to these people to at least tell them that this is not ultimately your home. This world is not essentially who you are. Even if people are telling you that you don't belong, even if people are persecuting you and torturing you, You can take great hope in Jesus Christ because you are part of God's people. Your country, your ethnicity is not ultimately who you are. Yes, those things bring richness to you. They bring personality to you. Peter said you have a core identity, a race and a citizenship that's even more central to who you are than your ethnicity or your political citizenship. He says in chapter 2, you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, you catch something in that verse. That's 1 Peter 2.9. You catch something in that familiar verse, especially in light of the fact that these are elect exiles. These are people who are on the run. Not only are they being pursued and killed and violated and persecuted, they are nevertheless called to give the saving truth of Christ. They're supposed to give the gospel. Not only are they supposed to run and get away, but they're supposed to also give the gospel to those who are trying to kill them, their enemies. Well, that's us too, right? That's our calling in this world, this broken world. It's not just to survive, but it's to then give love 
and truth to those who persecute us, to spread the truth and glory, the excellencies of Christ faithfully. And so Peter is writing these words to the elect exiles. In a sense, these elect exiles are no different than us. They're living in a hateful and a hostile world, bearing the truth of Christ with joy and a winsome appeal to people to have faith in Christ and repent. Well, that's the context of our passage. Let me read it. I'm going to start. I'm going to read a couple verses on either side of it. I'll begin in 13 and go down to 17, but pay special attention to 15. That's what we're going to kind of take apart this morning as we look at God's Word. Follow along as I read aloud. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. After finishing the Gospel of Matthew, I don't know about you, but hopefully you have a better picture of the life of Christ and the people surrounding Christ who were around Him, all these apostles initially, and I've assigned certain personalities as we've read the, the gospel accounts, assigned certain personalities to them. John the apostle, for instance, as I think about John, he seems to be a very black and white guy, a very loving guy, he just knows what is right, a very strong sense of right and wrong, makes clear distinctions. It's clear that John was a fearless man. His fearlessness probably caused him some trouble at times, but it also benefited him. I mean, he was the first one to run to the tomb. He was the only one, you remember this just from a few weeks ago, he was the only disciple, the only apostle that remained with Jesus all the way through. He was there at the cross, close enough where Christ could speak to him. On the other end of the spectrum is another leader among them, and that is the apostle Peter. Peter was a man who was willing to lead, willing to talk, willing to do things, but he was a guy who struggled with fear. In fact, as we read the Gospels, it seems to me that Peter wanted to be seen as someone who's fearless, a fearless leader, but was a man who was riddled with fear. His fear often got the best of him. Of course, we remember when he was summoned by Christ to walk on water with Christ, and he went down, he looked around, and and sunk because of his fear and lack of faith. If there's no better picture than Peter's fear, than his denial. When Jesus was arrested, Peter seems to be this guy who wants to attack the whole Roman army with a sword, but then moments later, just within a few hours, he's afraid of a small servant girl who asked him if he was with Jesus or not. Now, Peter is writing this letter some 30 years after the crucifixion. And what we'd seen since that time is a great change in Peter's heart, a great change in Peter's life, and the Holy Spirit coming upon him, and a man that can demonstrate at times great fearlessness, but it seems like he he still at times would struggle with fear. 
You know, the early in the life of the church, Peter was a little bit afraid of the, the temptations of the Judaizers, the people that, says, that said you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. He seemed to fear their approval, and Paul, the apostle, had to go and confront him at his face. So it seems like Peter's a man who has conquered his fear, but only conquered it in the Spirit, only conquered it because of what God was doing in his life. Now, the reason I say all this is if there's anyone in the Bible we need to listen to about overcoming fear, it's the Apostle Peter. This guy was a fearful individual. Yes, he could lead. Yes, he could talk. But he's a man who seemed to struggle with the fear of others. He knows fear, but he also knows the strength of the Holy Spirit in us, the strength of the Word to overcome that fear. And it's out of this knowledge and out of this spiritual truth that he's speaking to these elect exiles, to give them some of that spiritual courage. In fact, look up again at verses 13 and 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Could you say that fear is the number one reason why people, why Christians don't actively make disciples? I think you could. Fear of consequences, persecution, fear of being thought of as some sort of Jesus freak, fear that you may not have the answer. Maybe you start evangelizing someone and they they ask you questions that you can't answer. Fear that maybe you don't have the gospel down pat like you thought you did. And Peter, of all people, can tell us how to overcome that fear. Have no fear, he says. You notice Peter doesn't say, have no fear because everything's going to be fine. Have no fear because you'll never be persecuted. Have no fear because even if you have a hard time, right after that are going to be some really good times, really easy times. No, Peter himself died a martyr. Peter's not a prosperity gospel preacher. What he's saying is no one can truly harm you. I'm sure Peter remembered the words of Jesus. Do not fear them who can harm the body. In fact, if they harm your body, that's the most they can do, and you are most blessed, Jesus said. Why fear someone if the worst thing they can do is give you a one-way ticket to heaven? Why be afraid of humans? They can't ultimately harm you. Do not be feared. Do not be fearful. Do not be troubled. That's the theme here. Why fear those who can only kill you? That's not true harm. Peter brings us into the fundamental thoughts of readiness, living fearlessly, living in this life, even on the run, even as refugees, living as exiles in a place that doesn't love Christians and, in fact, hates Christians. How do you face this? How do you live ready? How do you overcome this fear? Look at verse 15. Instead of fearing or in the face of fear... What should we do? Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Number one, how do we remain ready? How do we attain this ability of readiness? How do we overcome fear? Number one, honor Christ in your heart. Honor Christ in your heart. Now, what could this mean? What could Peter mean by honor Christ in your heart? Does he just mean think highly of Jesus? Is that it? Well, it can't be that because a lot of people, even non-Christians, 
Many people think highly of Jesus, have some level of respect like you would for Gandhi or for Buddha or any other leader throughout human history. It can't just simply mean think highly of Christ. What does it mean to honor Christ in your heart? Well, the word there really means to set Him apart, to put Him on a throne, to to really build an altar in your heart of worship to Jesus Christ, to make Him the object of your worship, to make Him the object of your obedience. And we know that's what Peter means because if you just look through his letter here, what you find out is is that's what he's preaching to the people. How do you honor Christ? How do you live a fearless life? You obey Jesus. Back up in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. What about verses 8 and 9? Talk about talks about our attitude and spirit and heart toward one another. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. That's what it means to honor Christ. Look in chapter 2, verse 1, wives subject... Be subject to your husband. Verse 7, likewise, husband, live with your wives in an understanding way. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only in the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Honoring Christ means to pursue good, to pursue righteousness, to live a life that honors Jesus. If you love me, you will obey my commands. How does this relate to evangelism? Well, there's this horrible quote that Christians oftentimes use. They attribute it to St. Francis of Assisi. It's not, he didn't say it, but for whatever reason, he's the one that gets the blame. It's the phrase, maybe you've heard it, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Maybe you've heard that quote, maybe someone said that quote one time and you got a very pensive look on your face and nodded in agreement. It's a bad idea because to tell the gospel, you actually have to tell the gospel. You actually have to speak the words of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing the words about Christ, right? You have to actually speak words about Christ. But I do understand the sentiment behind that quote, don't you? you? You have to live a life that looks like you follow Christ, right? You have to preach the gospel with your actions. No, the actual gospel message will not come out just by acting, but it has to be consistent with the gospel truth that you may tell to others. Our marriages should be different. Our lives must reflect the excellencies of Christ, our relationships and our family with our co-workers must be different. Our relationship to our bosses, our relationship to the government even should be different. It should demonstrate that we honor Christ in our hearts. A clean conscience is really what gives us boldness when it comes to the gospel. It gives us a fearlessness. It readies us to share the message 
of Jesus. More than that, if you truly honor Christ, if your life, if that's your life's objective, you will take that command that Christ gave, that great commission, you'll take it seriously. It is your official instruction. It is the basis for your whole mission on earth. Jesus has given you this command to make disciples, and, and you take it seriously if you honor Christ in your heart. I just want to pause here a moment and let this marinate. When was the last time you obeyed the Great Commission? Now, I'm not even saying you have to ask someone to make a decision or do a high-pressure gospel sales pitch, but when was the last time you just, you just spoke the gospel to somebody, found out where they were, tried and prayed for them in terms of their discipleship? When was the last time you did that? Honor Christ in your heart. That's the first idea of readiness and fearlessness. Number two, we'll spend a little more time here. Be prepared with the gospel truth. Be prepared with gospel truth. That's the next phrase there in verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone. I want you to notice it doesn't say you better have every possible answer to every possible question that someone may ask about God. It doesn't say, you better read up on all philosophy, not just philosophy pertaining to Christ and doctrine and theology, but all other philosophies and have answers for those philosophies. That's not what Peter's saying. In fact, it's pretty simple. If someone asks about the hope you have, be prepared to tell them. Now, this phrase, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone, this implies a couple of things. First of all, it assumes that your life, your language, your activity, your responses ought to be so clearly different that people indeed are asking. Why is this person different? Now, I just have to say, when we usually think about this, we usually think in terms of ethics, and it is, it is true, as Christians, our ethics should be different than the world. But I don't think that's what ultimately Peter's after here because Peter says they ask of the hope that is within you. So, yes, there, there ought to be a different morality, but, but really what should be different and what should be noticeable is that you are a person who lives in hope. You are a person who has certain comfort, a certain joy, a certain peace about you that others don't have. He's talking about this obvious joy, this clear hope. And really, I would rather that be the obvious thing that's different about me than some list of rules that's different than others. That's the, that's the real difference. That's the palpable difference. That's the, the difference that is attractive. That's the difference that's winsome. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. And we show a certain kindness, a certain hope, a certain peace about our lives, and that's what attracts people to believers, not some sort of list of rules. Let's just flesh this out in a stressful situation in your work or in your family, moms and dads with your children especially, all those inevitable stresses that come upon you, things go sideways, everyone's under the gun, everyone's piling up demands. Amidst all that, there ought to be someone who's full of grace and patience and hope, and that person should be you. Dear Christian, should be every believer. 
This ought to be something you pray for every single morning. Lord, I don't know what's coming my way today. I don't know what kind of stresses or hardship or difficulties are, are coming to me. But Lord, I, I want to be someone who suffers these things with grace and kindness. I want to be someone who shows a hope. How about dealing with difficult people? Could your peace and your hope and your kindness be shown there? Of course it should. Difficult people are everywhere. I went to a, a customer service station this week, and there's a window, and I walked up the window. There's a little bell, and there's like a kind of an open area, and over to the left is the, are the offices and cubicles where the service folks sat. And I rung the bell, and I assumed that someone would walk up and ask me a question, and someone sort of stood up and looked at me and says, What do you need? I started talking... And the person turned their back away from me and pointed at someone in another cubicle. And that person leaned out of their cu cubicle and said, good luck with that. I could feel my hair growing. Ah, where's your supervisor? Do I walk off with peace and kindness or am I someone who gets angry and frustrated and mad and stamps my foot, acts like anybody else? Dealing with difficult people, we ought to show a grace, a peace, a kindness, a hope. What about facing evils you can't control? You're diagnosed with some sort of illness. You're faced with layoff. You're faced with difficult things in your finances. Someone wrecks your vehicle, runs into the back of your car. Are you the man who gets angry? Are you the lady who gets depressed, frustrated with life? Or are you someone who demonstrates a peace that passes all understanding? Overall, this hope should be something that defines our general demeanor. I think this is what the Apostle Peter is saying, is that as we get into these difficult situations, our, our lives, the way we respond to things, ought to beg a question. You, you seem to approach these things much differently than I do. You seem to have such great peace, even though you're facing a very difficult situation, Tell me about this peace and this hope. That's the first implication of this phrase, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that is within you. It assumes that you're living a life that begs that question. This phrase also assumes that you know the basic truths of the gospel, that you can give a reason for the hope that's within you. I want to say a couple of things. For one thing, again, it doesn't say that every Christian should be a professional apologist, a debater, who can deploy all the verses at the right moment, who can answer any kind of objection. After my high school graduation, I spent 12 more years going to school. And it was all about the Bible and religion and I still am stumped almost every single week. I don't think you'll ever get to a point where you can answer every question. If you've gotten to that point, you need to study the subject of humility. No one's gotten to that point. 29 years of ministry, and I've not gotten to that point. This passage most definitely is not saying that we should never be stumped by anybody's questions 
that we should some become some sort of expert apologist. Now, some of you, you may pursue that and do a little better than others of us. It's not saying, though, that we should have an answer for every objection. Let's talk about the central question, the one question regarding what's behind the hope and the peace of your demeanor. Though it doesn't mean you have to have an answer for every question, it does mean that you must be able to explain at least the basics of the gospel. I suspect that some of you, you believe yourself to be a Christian, or perhaps you are a Christian, and, and you may think this thought right now, well, I, I don't really know how to share the gospel. I'm not really prepared. And, and I would say to you, well, if you are a Christian, you, you do have that. Now, you may not have some format. You may not be ready just yet. But that's what this verse is telling you to be. It's telling you to organize your thoughts around the gospel and be prepared to answer this, because those truths are in you. If you're a genuine believer, you know the gospel. Prepare yourself. Be ready always. I would say just practice explaining to the, go the gospel to somebody. Maybe on the way to work, turn off that podcast and just sit in traffic and pretend you're on the phone for, so that you don't look an idiot to the people next to you, and just talk through the gospel with an imaginary lost person. Practice speaking the gospel to others. I suspect some of you feel like you are ready, that you can share the gospel. I would just say, dig deeper, do better. When you sit in traffic, maybe imagine someone with, with some sort of very convinced position. Maybe it's of a, another religion or another philosophy. Dig into those things, study those things, be prepared to give an answer. Think of individuals you might explain the gospel to, individuals from different backgrounds, different history, different religions. Be ready always. That brings us to that next phrase, make a defense. That three-word phrase in the original is apologia. It's where we get the word apology or apologetics. Many of you know this. In our minds, we hear the word apology. We think of someone saying sorry, but that's not what this word means. That's not what this verse means. Peter's not saying that we as Christians ought to go around apologizing to everyone for it. What he's saying is we ought to make a reason, give a reason. That's why it says make a defense. You hear, you hear that word, apologia, that word where we get the word logic. See, our faith is not built, we studied this a few weeks ago, our faith is not built on blind credulity. There's no evidence, there's zero reason, zero logic, zero sensibility to trust in Christ. It's just a blind leap, contrary to sound thinking, contrary to good archaeology, good science, contrary to all these things, not at all. Get this in your mind. Our faith is built on truth, it's built on history, it's built on and coheres with reality and archaeology, even science. I'm not saying people come to faith to Christ through science or logic. God definitely has to do a mystical work on the heart of human beings. Logic is not the answer. But it does mean, and what I am saying, is that our faith is not illogical. Just because God works mystically or supernaturally doesn't mean our faith is blind and illogical. Doesn't mean our faith is unreasonable or irrational. What we're telling people to do is to defy logic, defy history and science and 
all reason. No, we are giving a reason. We are giving a logic. We are showing them there is a logical flow to human history and what God has done and what Christ has accomplished. The whole argument of Christ, His atonement, His resurrection, the whole argument has a logical flow to it. You are giving that reason to people. In fact, if their sinful stained hearts could be clear of all the false thinking and all the false worldly twisted thoughts, they would actually see the truth. And they would see Jesus as the most reasonable answer to all that their lives are. And the most reasonable thing they could do is to trust in Christ and follow Him. If they could see history as it really is, if they could see science as it really is, nature as it really is, if they could see and understand their own hearts, the purpose and plan of the universe, that's philosophy. If they could see that with truth, they would understand the most rational thing they could do would be to have faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin. So Peter here is saying you need to be able to rationally, logically piece together for them the gospel, the essence of the gospel. You do that praying that God would do a, a miraculous spiritual work on their heart, that God would regenerate them so they would understand the gospel and they would respond to the gospel. Are you able to do that? Can you give the gospel to someone? Again, he's not asking if you can answer every question, but can you clearly give a basic, logical, flowing description of the gospel? That's what Peter wants them to be able to do. And really, that's the objective over the next few weeks I want to be able to arm you with, give you some pillars in your gospel presentation. You know, we have this team that goes out to uh, the bus stops and the beaches, other places called Placing the Pebble Ministry. They go to these places and they just meet people cold turkey and try to share the gospel with them as best they can. That ministry was started by our missionary, Kevin Flirrell, and yesterday he and one of our uh, uh, soldiers here in the church went with him to the coronation there in London, and they, their objective was simply to share the gospel. They handed hundreds and hundreds of tracts out, tried as best they could to share the gospel with people. Now, someone might argue this kind of evangelism is not the most effective, and truly it's, it's not, numerically speaking, statistically speaking, it's not a really effective way to do it, but it does have a number of benefits sharing the gospel in that way. In fact, I would encourage you to go and be a part of that placing the pebble. You'll see some immediate benefits. One of the benefits, and perhaps the main benefit, is that you have to piece together in your mind and be ready to give an answer. You have to put this thing together in your mind in a, in a very quick, brief, sometimes just momentary way to be able to explain the gospel to someone. This is what Peter is telling us to do. Have the basic ideas of the gospel, the, the basic contours of the gospel, have that down so that you're ready. You say, well, I'm not ready. Well, that's what this passage is encouraging us to do. It actually presumes, it's kind of encouraging because this passage presumes that some people to whom Peter's writing, some of these people aren't yet ready. That may be some of you. Be ready. Have the gospel truth in your mind. Now, it's very interesting because he says, gives a reason for what? The hope that lies within you. This is a magnificent description of the gospel as it abides in the heart of a believer, isn't it? I think it's one of the most beautiful descriptions of the gospel in the heart of a believer. 
It's not just some religious duties. It's not just some decision you made. It's not just some sort of church you attend or whatever. It's a hope that lies within you. You're not just sharing with someone some religious prerequisites. Oh, you want to be part of our club? You have to do this, 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 and this. And then we, you know, cut our fingers and shake our hands. No, you're explaining to them the hope that lies within you. And I like that description because it indicates to us that our hope is not something that is here on this earth. It's not something earthy or earthly. It's something that's beyond this world. It's something that lies in the future. It's not in the present. It's not better health. It's not more money. We don't go to people and say, hey, believe in Jesus and all your money problems will go away. Believe in Jesus and all your health problems will go away. We don't say that. That's not the hope of the gospel. Our hope is not in this life now. Our hope is beyond the grave. Our home is not here. It's where our blessed dear Savior is for eternity. We look to the future. We don't look to this world, this present life for peace. We look, for, we look to eternity. That's what gives us hope. That's what gives us peace. We look beyond this life. Let me just say, if you can find your best life now in this world, you've got a rude awakening after your life ends. Our hope is not in the present. It's looking forward. It is indeed hope. So we are to honor Christ in our hearts. Number two, we are to be prepared to give the gospel truth, give a reason for the hope that is in us, make a defense for that hope. How should we do that? What's our demeanor? What's our attitude? This is number three. You do it with gentleness and respect. Number three, be gentle and respectful. Be gentle and respectful. This is pretty straightforward. Now, there's a phenomenon. It happens, we talked about it in our uh, men's group a few weeks ago. It happens among missionaries sometime. I don't know if missiologists have a name for it, but it does happen in missionaries. They, they're attempting for so many years to evangelize a certain ethnic group or a certain people group, and they work so hard at this that they eventually began to grow a little bit callous because they just get one rejection after the, the other. And then they're, they're surrounded with all these strange foods and, and these people who do things different and, and act different and, and are not responding to the gospel and constantly are rejecting them and rejecting them. And, and it's, a, it's a fact that sometimes you find missionaries growing callous to the very people to whom they're bringing the gospel. This actually happened to Martin Luther, the reformer. Did you know this? He, he actually felt, and there's some statements early on in the Reformation after he got saved, he, he felt that the, the first group of people he needed to evangelize was Jewish people. And he began to work. Every Jew he could find, he was trying to, to say, of all people, you should understand the gospel. He would give the gospel to him, only to be rejected again and again and again and again, to the point where he got bitter and callous towards Jews. He said some regrettable things. He said things just so you know, that's no different than what other Europeans were saying about Jews back then. But he said some regrettable racial things. In fact, those things were taken up by Hitler later on. He was using to manipulate the people against the Jews. And I think this can happen to any one of us. We can grow bitter at being rejected all the time. I think this probably happens mostly within families. We can grow frustrated at the fact that this person rejects and rejects and rejects and rejects. Now, that's not to say at some point you, you, you stop trying to pressure them for a decision. I think that's probably there's some wisdom there. You've given them the gospel over and over again. 
But you still need to show them kindness and love and gentleness and respect. They know the decision you want them to make. And so you continue to show them kindness and gentleness. In fact, let's look at those two words and we'll wrap up today's message. Gentleness. The word indicates that you're aware of their sensitivities. It doesn't mean you shy away from the truth. It doesn't mean you change the gospel or delete things, truths in the gospel in order to appeal to them. But it does demonstrate that you understand where they are and the hardships and the things that they've gone through. You ask questions about their heart. You find out about how their struggles have been in life. You learn even from their perspective, again, not to change your understanding of the gospel, but to learn them and how the gospel can sound to them. That word for gentleness there can often be translated as meekness or humility. You prefer that person. You love that person. You don't put yourself on a higher level than that person. You don't talk down. You're their servant, their help, their gentle, loving, meek sponsor. You're gently offering truth to them. Paul told the Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, same word as what we find in Peter, and patience. Remember what Peter said, I read it a moment ago, what he said right after he said, you're a chosen race. Right after that, there's some verses. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just a reminder, you're no different. We're no different. We're not better because we chose God or we made some spiritual decision. We are exactly the same. We need the mercy of God. Some folks get the idea of election all wrong. They think it's their decision that sort of forces God to then turn around and choose them, but that's the exact opposite of what election is. God chooses not based on what they've done, but on His grace, on His goodness, on His kindness, on His righteousness. And we rely on it entirely. So when you go to share some, the gospel with someone, you understand that this person is a person who needs mercy just like you did. They need grace just like you. You're not a Christian because of your efforts, simply the mercy and grace of God. So you make your presentation with gentleness in a meek way. The other word there is respect. That goes perfectly with gentleness. You respect this human as another person. It doesn't mean you prefer their religion or respect their ideas as valid, their false ideas as valid, but you respect them as a human being. They're not objects. They're not clients. They're not potential buyers. You're trying to sell them the gospel here. You just want them to get in the gospel as quickly and efficiently as possible. What do I have to do to get you in this gospel? You treat them as a human, and you respect them, and you're kind to them. Well, I pray that our church is ready to do this. The next few weeks, like I said, we're going to stop at some pillars. There'll be some other services. Spencer will be preaching next week, his first sermon here with us. and We'll get to hear that. There'll be some other special things happening, but over the next few weeks, we're going to learn some pillars so that we're ready and prepared to share the gospel to all who would ask the hope 
that's within us. Let's pray that we would do this. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the day. We pray that we would be ready. Help us, dear God, be people who live a life that's in accordance with what you've said here. You've given us this magnificent verse, a verse that was written to people who faced likely far greater difficulties than we as a whole, maybe not individually, but as a whole, gathered here that we are facing, Lord. These people are refugees. They're facing all the hardships and disease and death of those ancient days, and they're facing major, deadly, fatal persecution. And so we pray that as we think about them and think about the words that Peter wrote to them, I pray that we too would take these words to heart and we would be ready to share the hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, as always, for those who don't know you, we pray that you would give them the desire to love you and turn to you even as I pray. Help them turn to you in faith and repentance. We ask this in the name of Jesus. 